So I was thinking of, uh, you know, it's the first week of the year. So this is when we make good resolutions. As an encouragement to all of you, I've already broken mine. So now we can feel like we're all the same. You know, it's been a week and I've already broken mine. But I thought maybe we can do, uh, we, we can uh, make another good resolution, and it would be that for 2018, and I think this is going to resonate with you because I know your pastor. For 2018, let's make a resolution to be a little more biblically correct and a little less politically correct. Amen? So that's our resolution. And I think a good way to do that, there's many ways to do it, but a good way to do that is to see how we can go further in blessing the Jewish people and blessing Israel. And uh, there's a lot to be said on that topic. Unfortunately, what's happening in the world today is we see the whole world turning against the Jews and turning against Israel. And that is the topic of tonight, anti-Semitism. Is, anti is anti-Semitism still a threat? Right off the beginning, let me tell you, the answer is yes. Yes, it is still a threat. But how big of a threat and should we be concerned and can we do something as believers? Well, um, let me bring some questions here for, uh, for tonight's topic or some, let, let make some statement first and then we'll go into the topic. Uh, so we see that the world seems to have an obsession with Israel and the Jewish people. You see it all over the news. You see it uh, in the media, Hollywood, campuses, churches, different denomination. Uh, Jewish history can be studied in light of thousands of years of anti-Jewish sentiment, later known as anti-Semitism. Actually, I have a class that I teach a seminar that I do in churches. Maybe I'll come and do it here one day. It's a whole day seminar. that I, It's 30 hours of teaching that I condense in 8 hours. I'm going to try to do it in 45 minutes tonight. So listen fast. And by now you're going like, he's given us the notes. Praise God. Yeah, don't, don't worry about it. Uh, Anti-Semitism is very alarming and concerns all people of goodwill and especially believers like you and I. End times anti-Semitism is both a pandemic of hatred and a prophetic sign of the imminent return of the Messiah. Do you believe that Yeshua, Jesus, is going to return? Yeah. Amen. Now would be a good time. Okay? But in the meantime, let's talk about what's going on with the Jewish people. I believe, as I've studied anti-Semitism for just about 20 years now, I believe that we are in a new phase of anti-Semitism. And I'm, that's what I'm going to try to cover tonight. I want to tell you where we are. I want to tell you where I think we're going. But even before that, before I tell you where we are and where we're going, I need to tell you where we're coming from. Because anti-Semitism did not happen in a vacuum. It's a process over 2,000 years, even more than that. Okay? But... Uh, Something very important for Christians to understand. If you take home something tonight, just one thing, just one thing that you take home with you tonight, this, the unavoidable Christian baggage. When you enter into a conversation or a relationship with a Jewish person, you want to share Yeshua with them, this is what you bring in into the room. You bring a suitcase filled with the Crusades, the Inquisition, the pogroms, the Holocaust, Luther, the Black Plague, and more. All those Christian things, quote-unquote, that your Jewish friend is very aware of. He knows all those things. He's heard it. He's read it. But you don't. Most Christians don't know all those things. They, they know the Holocaust happened. They, they know about the Inquisition. They know about the Crusades. But, but how does it connect to the Jewish people? And how much of all this has been done, in, 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 in most cases, in the name of 
Christianity in the name of Christ, but not really by true Bible-believing disciples of Yeshua. Amen? Yet, you bring this in a room when you go into a conversation with a Jewish friend, family member, co-worker, schoolmates. You can't get rid of it. You cannot leave it behind. It's invisible, but it's with you. And your Jewish friend knows all about this. So if you're going to enter in a conversation, if you're going to try to connect and relate and, 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 and make, a, make a difference in the life of that Jewish person, you really need to be aware of what's inside and know how to answer. Because you invite a Jewish friend to church, who say, hey, you want to come to my church? You, you know, they love Israel. What about the Holocaust? What about the Inquisition? What about the Crusades? I don't know. I mean, that's bad, but I, I don't know. I mean, uh, what do you want me to say? You need to be prepared. This is not going away. This is with Christians for the rest of mankind's history. So we need to unpack that suitcase. We need to open it and see what's inside and not be afraid to confront it biblically. Amen? Let me give you a couple of quotes. The road to Auschwitz was built by hate but paved with indifference. By Ian Kershaw, historian, British historian, the road to Auschwitz was built by hate but paved with indifference. To this, I would like to add, the road another potential holocaust is being rebuilt by hate but now paved with political correctness you believe that people don't care well israel is far the jewish people i don't know them i mean i'm one person not going to make a difference i don't know what to do i don't know what to say it's not my problem empathy and then political correctness. What about the Palestinians? What about the, uh, the you know, crimes against humanity that the Israel is committing, which is not true, by the way. We know that. All those things mixed. The road to another potential Holocaust is being rebuilt by hate and uh, paved by political correctness and apathy. When I talk about a, a, a potential Holocaust, I'm talking about Scripture here. We see in uh, uh, Zechariah 13.9, we see that there is a, uh, a scripture that tells us that God is going to bring the Jews back to the land, which, by the way, is happening in our day and age. We don't even have to wait. It's happening right now. But we, uh, we see that two-thirds of the Jewish people, when they're back in the land, will perish. And one-third will refine as gold is refined, as silver is refined, and they will become the Israel of God of Galatians 6.16, the Jewish believers, the followers of Messiah, all Israel, that at that time, at the end of the tribulation, will say, Baruch haba Adonai, blessed is you who comes in the name of the Lord. That's when all Jews become believers. That's that one-third. And it's tragic, because if you look at it today, that represents two-thirds of the Jewish people, that would be 10 million, and then one-third, that would be 5 million that would survive. So that would be a greater holocaust than the one that took place in the 40s. So I don't like that verse. But we have to look at it a little closer. It doesn't give us a number. And you're going, so what? It gives us a percentage, two-thirds and one-third. What's the difference? Well, when God wants to be precise, he gives us numbers. Okay? 12 tribes, 40 days, 144,000, 70 weeks. All those numbers are precise. Here is a number, a percentage. And why this is important? Because, well... I believe that there's going to be a rapture. Can I hear an amen? amen? I believe that the rapture is going to be before the tribulation. Okay, about half the room, Pastor. Just, no, I'm just kidding. Okay, so there's going to be a rapture. There's going to be a tribulation. At the end of the tribulation, the Jewish people are going to come to that place where two-thirds will be decimated. But 
if they're believers, the Jewish people who are believers are going to be raptured with the rest of the church, amen? Like myself. Well, guess what? That 10 million, 5 million could trickle down to the smallest two, two third, one third, which would be two and one person, three people. So somewhere between 10 million and 5 million and two and one is the magic number of the Jewish people. But until he returns, as we share the gospel with the Jewish people globally, worldwide, that number can reduce. The percentage is always the same, two and one, but it doesn't have to be 10 million and 5 million. If we do our job sharing the gospel, if you do your job sharing uh, prayers and financial resources with Jewish ministries that take the gospel, that number will reduce. Amen? That's very important. Now, let me give you a definition of uh, anti-Semitism. That's mine. That's one of many. It resembles probably many other definitions. Anti-Semitism is the irrational hatred of the Jewish people characterized by destructive thoughts, words, and actions against them. Thoughts, words, and actions against them. Simply because they are Jewish. Okay? I added recently, you see on the screen, the word irrational. Why? Because I believe, which is another reason why I wrote this book, I believe that we are entering into what's known as end times anti-Semitism. I coined the word because it's beyond the new anti-Semitism. It's another branding of anti-Semitism. It's another morphing, so to speak. And originally I called it eschatological anti-Semitism, and I realized as a Frenchman it's too complicated to say. So it's my, yeah, English is my second language, so I just call it end times anti-Semitism. Same thing, okay? But in this end times anti-Semitism, what characterizes that morphing of anti-Semitism, again, as we'll see throughout the evening, is the ir irrationality of it. We're seeing today people, uh, 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 ideologies, groups that do not agree on anything except they will agree on the destruction of Israel and the uh, disappearing, the destruction of all Jewish people globally. What I mean by that is, for instance, you have liberal left, liberalism, the left, the liberals, and then radical Islam. Two completely different ideologies. Couldn't be further apart on the spectrum of ideologies. The left and radical Islam disagree on everything. We know that, except on the killing of Jews and the destruction of Israel, they do agree. They work together in ways that are so irrational, you're wondering, where is this coming from? Well, I'm glad you asked the question. Anti-Semitism is from Satan. It, it, it is a creation of the enemy who hates everything that God loves and loves everything that God hates. He wants the Jews gone because when they call upon him, Baruch Abba Bashem Adonai, that's the end of his career. He's gone and he's not the boss of hell. He's one of the first one in the lake of fire for eternity. Amen? Amen? So he doesn't want to go there. He wants to postpone. So he wants to kill the Jews so they will not be able to call upon the one whom they have pierced. Zechariah 12.10, they will not be able to call on Messiah and maybe his career can be prolonged. That's why Satan is subcontracting his hatred to so many groups throughout history, even to today, groups like the church different denominations, not your church, obviously. But anti-Semitism, as much as Satan wants to push the agenda, anti-Semitism is not biblical. Amen? Anti-Semitism is not biblical. Genesis 12, 3, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. 
This is what I like to call God's foreign policy when it comes to Israel. Bless the Jews, you'll be blessed. Curse the Jews, you'll be cursed. Why is your church so blessed? Everywhere I look in this church, I see a picture of Israel, a picture of Jewish people. Your pastor has been to Israel many times. He loves the Jews. Everywhere I look, I just want to move here. It's even, the weather is even like Israel. So, why you're blessed? Because you're blessing the Jews. You notice in that verse, it doesn't say, you'll be blessed if you bless the Jews, you'll be cursed if you curse the Jews. And if you don't really know where you stand, if you don't want to make a stand, you want to be kind of in a gray area, sit on the fence, I'll sit on the fence with you, says God. It doesn't say that. There's only two choices. You bless or you curse. And if you don't do one, by default you do the other one. So there's really no choice. We have to bless Israel and the Jewish people. And the best blessing, my friends, is the gift that never stops giving. The gift of the gospel. The gift of eternal life. The death and resurrection of Yeshua, the Jewish Messiah for the whole world, to the Jew first. Amen? Amen. So that's the best blessing. Anti-Semitism is not biblical. Even one step further... Some Christians claim they don't really care for Israel. They, Israel has been replaced in God's plan. Uh, that would make God a liar, by the way, because he made an eternal covenant with Israel. Uh, Israel is no longer in God's plan, or the, the Jews are the, the, in the way of world peace. Well, look at Psalm 83. They make shrewd plans against your people and conspire together against your treasured ones. They have said, come and let us wipe them out as a nation, that the name of, the, of Israel be remembered no more. For they have conspired together with one mind, and then here is the clincher. Against you, they make a covenant. When you make a covenant against Israel, when you make a covenant to destroy the Jews, you make a covenant against the God of Israel, a God, against the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You cannot love God, call yourself a Christian, and say in the same breath, I don't like the Jews. If that's the case, then you need to examine your heart and ask God to change your heart. Because when you start reading your Bible, it's all over the Bible that God has chosen the Jewish people for a special purpose. They're not saved. I was not saved. I had to come to a saving knowledge of my Messiah. I had to invite Yeshua in my heart to be my Lord and Savior. Nicodemus went to Yeshua at night. Remember in John 3? I call it Nick at night. <laughs> he went to Yeshua at night, and he, he, he told him, he said, Hey, I'm Jewish, I'm a rabbi, I'm a member of the Sanhedrin, I'm a teacher of Israel. I'm in, right? And Yeshua said, No, you're not. You have to be born of water and born of the Spirit. You have to be born again. That passage tells, tells you that even the Jewish people were special in God's eyes, but we need salvation through Yeshua's death and resurrection. So now, let me take you through time. I don't even know what time I'm supposed to be done, but uh, I guess we'll be done or we'll be done, right? Okay. All right. You brought your sleeping bags? Good. Theological anti-Judaism paves the way for later anti-Semitism. Let me explain this. I'm going to go through time right now. We're going to travel through time pretty quickly. I'm going to quote a, a few of the church fathers. Before you get excited and you get mad at the church fathers, let me, tell you, let me tell you something. As a good rule of thumb, it's never constructive to generalize. So I'm going to talk about some people here. I'm not into character assassination. I just want to bring some of the things they said. And remember, it's part of that suitcase you, brought, you bring in the conversation with your Jewish friends. You can't take it out. So the church fathers, many of them, I mean, we wouldn't be where we are today if it was not for the church fathers, the way they structure the faith, they give us all the creeds, and they help us understand Christianity. But in the pack, because of their allegorical, non-literal approach to Scripture, many of them started to replace 
things and change the meaning of the Bible, and we got to where we are today. Uh, and so I'll give you some examples. Much good was done through these men, the few that I cite here tonight. But again, also some bad was done, and the good and the bad is still in their body of works. It's still available. It's part of history, and it's part of that suitcase that you cannot get rid of. John Chrysostom, as for me, I hate the synagogue, I hate the Jews, and for the same reason, men who are inveterate, murderers, destroyers, men possessed by the devil. Augustine, the true image of the Hebrew is Judas Iscariot, who sells the Lord for silver. The Jew can never understand the scriptures and forever will bear the guilt of the death of Jesus. Jerome, who gave us the Latin Vulgate, the, the, the Bible in Latin, that's a, you know, a great contribution to mankind. If you call it a brothel, a den of vice, the devil's refuge, Satan's fortress, a place to deprave the soul, you are still saying less than it deserves, speaking of the synagogue of the Jews, and on and on and on. They brought good, but they also brought this, and this is part of history, and this is what my people hear. They don't hear the rest because the rest doesn't really concern them. They don't understand, but this they hear, this they remember, and this is affecting the church's relationship with Jewish people, and we want to reach out to them. This is in the way. We need to be aware of this because true Bible-believing Christians do not speak like this, do not believe this, do not promote this kind of, 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 uh, of talk. So I'm going to move now. This is the 3rd century AD. We're going to move to 1096. We did a 700-year jump. Did you feel it? That was a big jump, okay? We are in the Crusades, okay? I learned the Crusades in France when I was born and when I was raised and when I went to school. It was uh, Christian Crusades against the infidel, the Muslims in the Holy Land. Didn't hear a word about anything against the Jews. Well, I'm looking a little more in-depth into historical uh, record, and I find out that as the Crusaders marched through Europe on their way to Jerusalem, a motto was born as they killed Jewish people on their way to practice, kill a Jew, save your soul. So it's almost like the, the salvation of their own soul was dependent on the killing of a Jewish person. So there was an encouragement to kill Jewish people to practice on the way to, to kill the, the infidels in Jerusalem. 1099, they arrived in Jerusalem and gathered 1,000 Jewish people in the great synagogue of Jerusalem, set it ablaze as they marched around it, singing, Christ, we adore thee. Thee are our light, our direction, our love. And now you wonder why my people don't want to go step foot in a church? You Christ killer, why don't you come to church with me on Sunday? It's in the suitcase, my friends. We need to be aware of this. We'll keep going. Money lending. The Jews love money. We're greedy. We want more money. We want to control the banks. Where is that from? I mean, I've heard it throughout my life. Oh, you're Jewish. You can get good deals. You like money. You know, you're good with money. Well, we might be shrewd. We might be good with money, but there's a reason for that too. Uh, but where does the greedy Jew comes from, which, by the way, is still being used today in the, in the end times anti-Semitism and the new anti-Semitism. It comes from the Middle Ages when the uh, Jewish people were forced into not owning land or shops or, or property, so they, they, they couldn't do anything but practice things that they could take with them when there, was, there would be an expulsion from France to Spain to Portugal, Italy, when the Jews were kicked out of countries. They couldn't take anything with them. So... What you can take with you is knowledge. So we had the beginning of a lot of Jewish doctors, knowledge of medicine, Jewish lawyers, knowledge of the law, and Jewish bankers started to also come into the picture because Christians could not borrow from other Christians. 
It was forbidden by the church. So they borrowed from Jewish people. Jewish people thought, hey, here's a way for us to make money since we cannot own, sell, buy. Let's do this. So they were forced into it. So a Jewish man would have a little money. He would lend it to a, a, to, to a, to a Christian, let's say $100, and say, when you come back to me and at such a date, bring me back 110 And the kings looked at that and they went like, ah, we're going to tax those Jews 115 or 15 over the 10, so more money. So it ended up that by the time the Jewish person gets the interest to make a living, they would have to pay more taxes than what they made. So they lost money, so they raised their interest rate, and it went on for a while. The kings kept doing it. The kings started the whole thing. They kept doing it in Europe so that the Jews had to increase and increase and increase the interest rate to the point where the myth of the greedy Jew and the resentment of the Christians was, was built up. And to this day, we have become the greedy Jew who love money. That's where it comes from. Are there greedy Jews in the world? I'm sure they are. But they happen to be greedy people first and Jewish second. Amen? There might even be some greedy people in the room tonight, and you're not even Jewish. <laughs> I don't know. It's not connected, yet the world wants to make it connected. The ritual murder, libel, blood libel, blood accusation, I'll go quickly over that. Uh, it is believed since 1100 when the myth started that Jewish people use Christian blood to make matzah for Passover. If you know anything about the Jewish people, it really doesn't make any sense because we take the blood out of everything. We eat kosher food without blood. The blood is very important to us to separate it from anything that we eat, so it makes no sense at all. But in uh, 1141, that was the first case that was reported, it was, uh, it, the, the, the rumor was spread and it continued until when? Well, I can safely say it continued until about a month ago. So it's not over. In Russia, a bishop that is in the, uh, in the close circles of Vladimir Putin uh, declared that he is pretty certain now that he has proof that the Jewish man, and it's true it was a Jewish man, who killed Nicholas, the Tsar Nicholas II and the whole family, did it for a blood ritual for the Jewish people. There's no proof of that, but... It was not denied when it was announced about a month ago. They let him say it from wherever pulpit he said it. So it's still being propagated today. And people are saying it and people are believing it. And also in many Muslim countries in the Middle East. The badge of shame. We're in 1200 now. The, the uh, Fourth Lateran Council, 1215, Jews became forced to wear the badge of shame. It later became the yellow star used in the Holocaust. The yellow star that my mother and my father wore when they were teenagers in Paris. That badge of shame came at the same time where the rumor was spread that Jewish people all had curly, dark hair, big, crooked nose, a dark skin, and a bad stench. So my question to these people is, if all this is true, why do we need a badge to recognize us? If we stink from so far away, you don't need to put a badge on us. All rumors, all lies, okay? And this, this led to a lot of killing in Europe uh, by the Catholic Church against the Jews and the, the masses just because uh, the Jews were more and more, being more and more ostracized, were accused of being Christ killers. Many Jewish people grew up in this country and, and around the world being accused of being Christ killers. But we didn't kill you. We didn't kill Yeshua. Or if we did, actually, all of us are responsible, not just Jews. But look what it says in John 10, 17 and 18. For this reason the Father loves me, this is Yeshua speaking, because I laid down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I laid it down in my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. 
this commandment I received from my Father. Yeshua gave his life of his own volition for you and you and me. And you watching on the internet, everybody watching for all of us. He gave it on his own. But we continue through history. We're in the 1500 now or 1300. We're moving fast. I know it's now you get a little, a little movement here. The Black Plague. Hey, 75 million people died in four years in Europe. It had to be the Jews. It had to be the Jews. By the way, we are getting a little respite lately because it seems to be that every ill of the world is always the fault of the Jews until Donald Trump. <laughs> Donald Trump is now responsible for the ills of the world, so we're getting a little respite. I thank President Trump for that. Jewish people are no longer the sole scapegoats of humanity. He's sharing the burden with us. I don't know how long it's going to last, but that's nice. Poisoning the wells of Europe. How did that come about? Well... Very few Jewish people died, so they must be responsible. If you go to Israel, every restaurant you go to, every home you go to, there is a little cup, a double-handed cup, where you put water, and before a meal, you do a liturgical prayer, and you wash your hands with water, and then you eat your meal. And most Jewish people eat kosher. Uh, back in those days, they would eat kosher food. So the, the food, the hygiene for the food back in the days of the Black Plague was better. So less Jewish people died. It was brought, the Black Plague was, was brought by rats on ships. That's where, you know. But then again, Jewish people, we've been called rats too, so maybe there's a connection. I don't know. Okay, here's, here's one that ruffles the feathers, especially last year. I didn't speak too much about this last year. It was just, you know, too soon. The 500 year of the Reformation. Don't want to talk about Martin Luther on the 500 year anniversary of the Reformation. That, that doesn't sit well. Was Martin Luther a bad guy? No. He was not necessarily bad. He, he, he brought the Reformation. He, he, he changed everything. He helped change Christianity for us. He helped mold Christianity the way it is today and, and bring it back to the Word of God. This was good. And he did this in 1523, but you know, 23, 20 years later, he wrote a book on the Jews and their lives. I talked to people, and they reasoned with me. and said, well, he was old. He was sick. He lost his mind. He said, I don't care. I don't care if he was old, if he was sick, if he had Alzheimer's, if he lost his mind, if he hated the Jew. I don't care. You wrote it. It's in that suitcase for history. And the Jewish people know it. They know it very well. You wrote that we should set fire on their synagogues and schools, bury and cover with dirt, whatever will not burn. Burn their house, also be raised and destroyed. I advise their prayer books and Talmudic writings be taken from them, that their rabbis be forbidden to teach, and on and on and on and on. My people, the Jewish people, know that Martin Luther was not really nice to the Jewish people towards the end of his life. They don't care if he was nice at the beginning. You know, when something bad happens to you, you seem to forget the good that happened to you. You focus on the bad. This is in the suitcase, my friends. So now, let me wrap up this period of time of, the, uh, of historical anti-Semitism with the Pale of Settlement, the pogroms, and the Holocaust, all in one slide. How did I do that in one slide? I'm not sure. But uh, it's about four hours of teaching in one slide. The Pale of Settlement is a large ghetto about a million square miles in Eastern Europe. This is where my grandmother, Rachel Shimkovitz, try to spell that word for, uh, for starters. Rachel Shimkovitz came from, uh, from Russia, from the Pale of Settlement. She was in the in Russia at the time of the pogroms, so she immigrated to France. The pogroms, a government-sponsored riots against the Jews, but even that was not enough. 
we have to come to the final solution, and that's what Hitler did with the Holocaust. You get, you're getting my notes, so um, uh, I don't want to go through the Holocaust in details, but it divides into four periods from 33 to 45. The Holocaust was the culmination of 2,000 years of anti-Semitism. And it's close to, uh, to me uh, because some of my family members went through it and never made it. Here's my mother on the left on this picture. She is wearing the yellow star that says Juif on it, which is, you know, Jew in French. In the summer of 1941, at the age of 15, my mother Evelyn saw her father, Morris Wanzweig, snatched by the Gestapo in front of her very eyes. He never returned and died in Auschwitz. She was taken to the south of France in the free zone where she survived the war, was hidden by a family of Catholic peasants who became about six years ago, they were uh, uh, inducted in the, uh, the, the Hall of Fame at the, at the Yad Vashem as righteous Gentiles because they saved my mother and two of her cousins didn't take any money, risked their life. They were not Jewish. They became righteous Gentiles. My, my mother is still alive today. She's, she just turned 90. And, uh, and, uh, and she, uh, she, uh, I had a, uh, the privilege of leading her to the Lord six, six years ago and my father the same day. And so this has, been a, uh, this has been a blessing to me. But keep in mind what happened to my mother here in 1941, because in a little bit further down, I'm going to show you another picture of her, and I'm going to tell you, like Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. Um, let's go into... Um, I, do I still have time? Okay. 15 minutes. 7, 18 minutes. Oh, it's getting better. Right. Do I hear a 20? <laughs> Okay, um, so I'm going to, uh, let's see, let me look at where I am right now because I don't want to, uh, yeah, I'm going to skip on this for a second. Trust me, I'll, I'll, okay, I skipped a few slides here. Uh, new anti-Semitism, let me just summarize it so we can get into end times anti-Semitism and then look at some practical uh, aspects of where we are. Um, the new anti-Semitism kind of, we're looking at after the war, Several things happened in the world happened in the world that made people think that anti-Semitism was gone, was dead. The Holocaust, I mean, come on, never again, the motto of the Jewish people after the Holocaust. We learn from the Holocaust. The world learned from the Holocaust. We're not going to let anti-Semitism raise its ugly head again. And the uh, the arrest of Adolf Eichmann, uh, you know, the, by the the the, the, the um, Jewish uh, secret service, the Israeli secret service cut. Adolf Eichmann, we thought this was a good sign. And then in 1965, when the Pope, I think it was Paul VI at the time, when he declared ex cathedra, you know, from the church, like the gospel, like the word of God, that's what Catholics believe, when he declared that the Jews are no longer responsible for the killing of Christ, 1965. It took him 1965 years to come to the realization that he's as guilty as we are. So we thought, you know, maybe the Catholic Church is going in the right direction. That didn't mean that all Catholics believe that, but the Pope said it, so that was important. We thought, okay, anti-Semitism is gone, but it was not. It was just taking a little time to morph into something new, and it came back on the, on the surface, was just swept under the carpet. It came back in the mid to late 60s, and this new anti-Semitism was the agenda of, of in the Middle East. It started with Yasser Arafat, who, who started to create this people ex nihilo, out of nothing, the Palestinians. Now, they exist, but they're not Palestinians. They're Arabs. And you know what? They need Jesus just like we do. Amen? But Palestinian, it's a myth. 
but they are real people. And when you put real people in a place and then they, they are displaced in a country, where then they have children that are born in that country that are innocent children that are born into this mess, and they, they become even more confused. So this started, and this anti-Semitism, this new anti-Semitism kind of came out of this mid-60s at that time where all of a sudden the innocent victims became the perpetrators and the perpetrators became the victims. So now we have Israelis and Jews that are called the, the, the Nazis, the new Nazis of the Middle East. They're treating the Palestinians like the Nazis treated the Jews. And the world is buying it hook, hook line, and sinker. So... This is what's been happening, and part of that is the BDS movement, the boycott, divestment, sanction, and, and the, uh, the social justice, and how Palestinians are, uh, Palestine is, is, you know, the, the Jewish sites are Palestinian sites, and all those things, and we see it increasing in the last, maybe in the last three to five years, I've seen an increase, uh, especially with things happening in front of our eyes that I thought were going to happen because the Bible speaks of it. But now I'm seeing it in my own life. And that's why I came up with end times anti-Semitism because it was no longer just a new anti-Semitism. It was a mix of classical or historical anti-Semitism, which we've been looking at up to now, up to, up to the Holocaust. And the new anti-Semitism, it's a morphing of the two, a meshing of the two. And now we have this end times anti-Semitism. And I, I look at it in three different areas, the Middle East, the European Union, and the United States. In the Middle East... Um, there is a Middle East, I mean, let's face it, friends. There is a Middle East fatigue. Since 1948, Israel has been at war. And until it came to us on 9-11, terrorist attacks were far away. It was bad. It was really tragic. Of course it was. But it was really a thing of the Middle East. And there's been a fatigue. We see it on the news all the time. People stop paying attention. So there is an expectation that it's supposed to happen there. Israel has been at war since 1948. Two intifadas in Israel uh, over, uh, over a period of uh, 20 years. Uh, the Gaza War of 2014, and now we have spontaneous intifadas in Israel, the delegitimization of Israel's Jewish sites. All, all those things happening. And then you add to that, in the Middle East, you add the Islamic State and radical Islam. At, at the, as of the end of 2017, the, uh, the uh, ISIS or ISIL or IS or Daesh, as they call it uh, in Europe or in Arabic, at the end of 2017, they had recruited over 120 countries and killed more than 1,200 people outside of Iraq and Syria. I believe, and this might just be me, and maybe your pastor would agree with me, I don't know, we haven't talked about that one yet. I believe that the Islamic State, even though they're losing ground geographically, I believe that their caliphate will become a virtual caliphate online through the networks because they are recruiting and teaching and promoting and sending people through the Internet. People don't even go need to Syria, need to go to Syria anymore to be trained. People don't even get trained anymore. Get in a truck, drive through a crowd like they did in the south of France a couple of years ago and just, you know, scream, you know, Allah is great and just kill as many people as you can in the name of Allah. That's what they're doing. So I believe that as they're losing ground in a geographical caliphate, which is a good thing, they're gaining ground on the Internet, and that's going to be hard to stop because you can do a lot spontaneously everywhere all around the globe. So they're here to stay, I think. But guess what? Even ISIS need Jesus, even more so. This is only going to stop radical Islam, Hamas, Fatah, Hezbollah, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, it's only, they're only going to stop if they meet Jesus. You know why? Because 
the West, not even Christianity, the West and radical Islam are two different ideologies. We, were, we, we value life. Christians in the West in general, they worship death. You can't mix the two. Until they understand the value of life and until they understand their need for a Savior, Yeshua the Messiah, it's not going to change. United Nations. Nations, sorry. United Nations. I mean, must be a typo. As of 2015, of the 193 member states of the United Nations, 136 have recognized the state of Palestine. UNESCO, a branch of the, uh, an agency of the United Nations, recognized Palestine in 2011, declared that the Temple Mount is a Muslim site, calling it in that declaration, in that statement, by its Arabic name, not even giving it any Jewish connection. I am waiting for the other shoe to drop, for the UNESCO to say that the Eiffel Tower is not French. It is as ludicrous as this. I mean, they would, you would expect it if they said that the Temple Mount is a Muslim site. Of course, they declared in that Jerusalem has no right to be the Jewish capital in 2017, but some people disagree with that. Amen? <laughs> Jerusalem is the eternal capital of Israel. It shouldn't be that big of a deal, okay? Capital of a, of a country is... Nobody cares about the capital of a country. We don't even know what they are. Yes, people say, what's the capital of this country? I don't know. Who cares? They, they, they care, but we don't care. But Jerusalem somehow cannot be the capital of Israel. That is wrong. And by the way, I am glad that President Trump declared Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, but God did not need President Trump because the center of the world is in Jerusalem and the center of God's program is going to resume in the future in, uh, in Jerusalem. The European Union, grave concern about the European Union in 2014, and there's been more, I need to update this, but Sweden, England, Ireland, France, Spain, all have recognized Palestine as a valid state. They also, Palestine was included in the International Criminal Court as a non-state observer. They can't vote, but they can give their input, and this they do, in telling the International Criminal Court, Israel is committing crime against humanity after crime against humanity, one after the other. And of course, it's not true, but that's what the world is believing. The rise of Islam in the European Union, the rise of globalism and political correctness, the rise of lethal anti-Semitism, killing Jews again. We are, my friend, in 2018, we are in the 1930s and 1940s. This is where we are, right before the Holocaust. We are, we're seeing things happening right now where the Jews are being ostracized, separated, targeted. That's why they're leaving for Israel they're scared. There's, no, no, there's a sense of hopelessness in the Jewish community. But, of course, we can find hope in the Messiah. But Jewish people, like in France, in my country where I came from, we never wanted to leave France. We have assets. We have, we have property. We have family. We have roots. My family's been in France for three or four generations. We don't want to move. Well, things are changing. 2015, if you remember, in 2015, there was a, an attack three days in a row uh, first day was I Am Charlie, when they killed 12 people in, that, um, in the, that, that satirical magazine. The next day, they killed a police officer on the streets of Paris. And the third day, a man entered a kosher supermarket on the outskirts of Paris, where the little square is on the screen right there, on the right side. Where is my, that's my hometown, where I grew up, where my house is still. And there's a blow-up aerial view on the right side of the screen. And 
Number one is the store on the top left, the kosher supermarket on the edge of Paris, where the man entered, took hostages, and killed four people before he was taken down. My niece, who lived where number two is, just 40 yards from the store, was in the store 15 minutes before the man entered, shopping for Shabbat, brought food home with a little boy in a stroller, and started cooking and turned the TV on, and she went like, wait a minute, look at the windows. This is happening right here. She had no idea. When it's not your time, it's not your time. My mother lives 500 yards from the store. She was on that street next to the store that morning. I called her when I saw this on the internet. I said, Mom, you're going to be okay. Stay home, lock the doors, and wait for a family to come get you. And my mother starts crying. Remember that picture of her when she was 15? In the same house. When the Gestapo knocked on the door, two gentlemen, God shouldn't even call them gentlemen, two men, Two men with those black leather coats come in and say, we need to have your husband come with us. My mother saw her father taken by the Gestapo, given away by a neighbor upstairs, by the way. A good Christian, apparently. She lived through that. She survived it. She really did not want to say to anybody that we were Jewish until she was 45. She was so traumatized for good reasons. She lived through it. I call her. She starts crying on the phone. She goes, Olivier, are they coming back for us? Twice in the same life. That's too much. Once is too much. But twice, this is what's happening in Europe, my friends. This is where we are. So I want to, uh, I want to give you some, uh, in the next few minutes that I have, I want to wrap up with you know, practical things we can do. Uh, before that, let me remind you, uh, of course, of another thing. In the United States, we see uh, it's unknown or ignored. It's the problem of BDS, boycott, divestment, sanctions. Your church probably knows about it because your pastor is on top of things. Uh, so campus intifada, uh, you know, fighting, the, you know, not letting Jewish people speak on, on campus and promoting the Palestinian uh, cause, replacement theology, or Christian Palestinianism making all the Jewish site and Jewish history and Jewish famous people of the Bible into Palestinians. Mahmoud Abbas, a few years ago, delivered a Christmas message. He doesn't even believe in Christmas. A Christmas message making Jesus into the first Palestinian. And the word loved it. It's online. Liberal political correctness, all those things are happening in the U.S., but the BDS movement is really a problem, especially on campuses in Hollywood and even in some church denominations that are now turning their back on Israel, several major church organizations. So what do we do? We go home and we just, uh, you know, we get depressed and we go like, oh, what are we going to do? We're just, I can't do anything. Well, no, we can. Number one, education. Know the players, know the agenda, know the ultimate goal, the killing of all Jews and the destruction of Israel. Know the players, know the agenda, know the ultimate goal. Get the book, shameless plug. There's more in the book than I can share tonight, okay? If you want to know all the players. We know the obvious ones, but there's plenty of other players you would be very surprised to find out in the book. Um, number two, once you know, share your knowledge. Don't keep it to yourself. Share. We have such a great, we live in such a great time. You can share on Twitter, you can share on, 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 on Instagram, you can share on Facebook, you can share in person. Wow, that's a, maybe we're not used to do it that way. You know, we don't share in person anyway. You know. And by the way, when, uh, when Jesus said, follow me, he didn't mean on Twitter. <laughs> just, just in case you didn't know that, okay? Uh, so share your knowledge with your family, with your friends, with your coworkers, with your students. Number three, support Israel. 
Take a minute to sign a worthy petition. Attend an event in your area. There's plenty of them in your area in Southern California. Call the local synagogue to offer help if you see, if you hear on the news that they're defacing a wall with a swastika or they're breaking a Jewish cemetery or something in your neighborhood somewhere. Call them and say, hey, I'm a Christian. I love Israel. I love the God of Israel. My Messiah is Jewish. Can I come and help? Anything I can do to help you, to volunteer to help you as a Christian. Let them know that Christians are Lovers of Jewish people in Israel. They might say no and turn you down, but this will not go unnoticed. Because the default mechanism in the Jewish mindset is that all Christians are anti-Semitic. Which, of course, we know is not the case. But my people need to hear it, and even more, they need to see it. They need to live it. Number four, speak up. Confront revisionism with facts and with the Bible whenever possible. Express your support boldly and stay away from character assassination. It's so easy to point the finger and criticize people and start talking badly about them. But stand on the Bible, boldly express your, your support for Israel, and confront the lies. Now here's my favorite one, number five. The believers BDS. They say boycott, divest, and sanction. We say buy, defend, and sustain. So buy Israeli products, defend Israel with the truth, sustain Israel with prayer. Now people say all the time to me, I don't know about Israeli products. How do I know Israeli products? Easy. In Genesis, in Genesis 50, 20, God, God talking about Joseph and the 12 tribes of Israel and his brothers when they did something bad to him, but God turned it to become something good. Well, this is exactly what we do here. You want to know, you take a website, uh, a boycott, divestment, sanction website. You go there and you look, look at the list of stuff they say you shouldn't buy. You got your list. They did the work for us. Amen? I love it. So let me finish with a few scriptures, about three different scriptures, and then we, we can wrap it up. Who we fight, Ephesians 6.12, remember this, we fight the enemy, we fight, uh, it's, it's, it says here, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's who we fight, we fight the enemy, we fight Satan, who hates the Jews with passion. Who we pray for. Now, that's what makes us unique. After all this is said, you want to go home and you want to hate all these people because they're, they hate the Jews, they hate Israel. It's just terrible. And, you know, from a human perspective, it kind of makes sense. From a Christian perspective, because this verse is in the Bible and we're not in the business of deleting verses from the Bible, I said to you, and this is Yeshua speaking here, I said to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I wish this was not in the Bible. I really do. But it is. So I have to obey this, and all of us do. Who we serve, this is the God we serve. Listen to this. In Jeremiah 31, 35 to 37, Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel will also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundation of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast up all the offspring of Israel for all they have done, declares the Lord. God, tongue-in-cheek here, is saying, no way, Jose, I'm not destroying Israel. I have a covenant with her forever. If you can measure the stars, measure the moon and the sun, count the stars, we keep discovering stars, millions of them, billions of them. We can't do that. This is God's way of saying, I will never come back on my word. Even though at the end it says... For all that they have done, God knows that the Jewish people have disobeyed. But this is not part of the covenant. It's an unconditional covenant. It doesn't bring salvation, but it promises, it promises that it's not going to allow 
for Israel to be completely destroyed. But God knows that we've been disobedient. If you want to read a really good book about the disobedience of Israel, let me recommend one. It's called the Bible. It shows about the disobedience of Israel. It shows also about God's covenant with Israel. And it shows about the need for Israel and the Jewish people to come to a saving knowledge of Yeshua. I will not read it, but if you look, and it will be in the notes you receive, of, uh, about uh, Ezekiel 36, 24 to 28, it reads about Israel's glorious future. When Israel, when, look at the first verse, it's happening in our lifetime. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into our own land. It is happening right now, my friends. And after that, God is going to sprinkle clean water. He's going to give Israel a new heart. He's going to put a spirit within Israel, and they will live in the land, and they will worship God, and he will call them my people. This is what's going to happen to Israel in a very near future. It's the same process of sanctification that the believers go through. Cleansing, new heart, new spirit, obedience to God, and intimate fellowship with God. That's the promise that Israel is going to receive, maybe even in our lifetime. Thank you, and let me close with a word of prayer.